Hello, and welcome to this FRTH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A regular listener contacted me and asked me to lighten up a bit. I took her point. The recent podcasts have been a series of conversations with leading intellectuals that are stimulating, but not very comforting. If you miss them, you can find them at the website www.goldfarbpod.com, where you can also make a donation to keep the podcast going. Anyway, as the suggestion came from someone who is a regular FRDH donor, I thought I would do as she asked and try and lighten up. So here goes. Is it possible for a society at an institutional and popular level to come together and do something that benefits every single citizen? The answer is yes. Britain's National Health Service is the best example, and I speak from personal experience. It's also possible for a society at an institutional and popular level to fail together. The American health system is an excellent example, and again, I speak from personal experience. This year has marked the 70th anniversary of Britain's National Health Service. The NHS was founded in 1948 on three basic principles. Every single person could have access to it, medical services were based on clinical need, and they would be free at the point of provision. The last point is critical. The service is funded by tax, so everyone pays for it. But when you actually need to use it, it's free. And what does that mean in practice? Well, a decade ago, my wife started complaining about having trouble seeing out of one eye. A day later, she woke up and couldn't see at all out of that eye. We made an emergency appointment at our GP. The doctor examined her and said, I can't see your retina. I think it's detached. She went online to the massive NHS database and arranged for an emergency consultation at Moorfields Eye Hospital. My wife was admitted, and the next day surgeons reattached her retina. At no point in this process did I have to think about, does my insurance cover this? Do I have a spare 500 pounds or 500 bucks in the bank to cover a copay or post-operative pain relief drugs? All I had to worry about was taking care of my wife. And finding a parking place near Moorfields, no easy trick, and having enough change in my pocket to feed the meter. Sitting with my wife in the waiting area, suffused with this peaceful, easy feeling of not worrying about could we afford this, I was reminded of my last interaction with the American healthcare system. Back in 1981, I was playing catcher for a team in a softball league in Washington, and I got my face kicked in. Now, I know softball is a non-contact sport, but it was a very competitive league, and on a play at the plate, I turned to tag a guy out who was running in from third base, and he decided, rather than slide, to make like Pete Rose and run through me. His bony knee hit me in the left cheekbone, and I felt a sharp crack. I knew severe damage had been done. Luckily, a couple of guys on my team were interns at George Washington University Hospital. An aside to all of you who still play team sports or who have children who do, always make sure you've got a couple of medics on your team. It's very useful in situations like this. Anyway, they drove me to the emergency room, arranged a wheelchair to meet me at the door, and I was rolled towards a reception clerk who asked to see my insurance card. I was in sweat clothing, no wallet, the left side of my face staved in, edema filling the sinus under my eye. I didn't have the card, and she fussed about that, and then I began to panic, and for the first time since the incident, I got a little out of control and started crying. I don't know. I don't know where it is. I don't know. 
My teammates asserted their place in the hospital hierarchy and told her to worry about that later and took me through some swinging doors back to the part of the triage area where the badly injured were attended to. I thanked them, they left, and I sat there worrying about how much of this my Blue Cross would cover. Not much, I was pretty certain. I sat waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. More than an hour went by. I caught a look at my face in a reflective surface. My left eye was about a quarter inch lower than my right, and my left cheek seemed to have been pushed sideways to accommodate it. Another half hour went by. Others who came into the triage area after me were seen. I was ignored. And then I decided to pull rank. I come from a family of doctors. My father and his brother and three of my cousins are all physicians. My dad was quite a prominent clinical professor. I walked through the swinging doors back to reception to the payphones, it was 1981, and made a reverse charges call to him. While a dozen people stared at my mangled face, I told him what had happened and where I was and then walked back to the triage area. Fifteen minutes later, two on-call residents, one in plastic surgery, the other in ophthalmology, were attending to me. The eye doctor assessed no serious damage to the eye, amazingly, and I became a plastic surgery case. All came right in the end. The hospital's chief of plastic surgery rebuilt my left cheekbone, and I never saw a bill. I had connections. I had juice when it came to medicine in America top tier of a highly graded system of care based even after the passage of the Affordable Care Act on how rich you are and how good your insurance is, unless your father is a top medical specialist who can call a colleague and get you seen to by the best. In the waiting area of Moorfield's Eye Hospital, those memories reminded me yet again of which system works best for the most people. The beginnings of the NHS grew out of the linked crises of the Great Depression and World War II. In the space of a decade, the old order was destroyed, and it was clear that when the war ended, there would be no going back in Britain to the old ways of doing things. In 1942, as the long, slow process of reversing the German Splitzkrieg began to get traction, Parliament commissioned economist William Beveridge to analyze the existing social insurance structure and suggest improvements. Beveridge's report began, Now, when the war is abolishing landmarks of every kind, is the opportunity for using experience in a clear field. A revolutionary moment in the world's history is a time for revolutions, not for patching. Beveridge suggested creating a true cradle-to-grave welfare state with a social safety net to catch those who had fallen on hard times. Everyone would pay national insurance out of their earnings and be covered when the time came. Income when they lost a job, a pension when they reached old age, health care when it was needed. In 1948, the labor government of Clem Attlee created the NHS, not without some bleeding from elite doctors. Today, it is one of the essential pillars of British identity. Along with the monarchy, it's the most popular institution in the country by most public opinion research measures. And why not? 
I was walking down Kentish Town Road one day, minding my own business, and with the physical grace that characterizes my journey through life, tripped and fell awkwardly on my shoulder, dislocating it. A shopkeeper called emergency services. Ten minutes later, I was in an ambulance being run to hospital. Half an hour later, my shoulder was popped into its socket, and I was booked in for a series of physiotherapy treatments. No one asked to see my Blue Cross card. Everyone uses it. Everyone is vested in it. Good old NHS, we say to one another when we hear a story of the care a loved one received, whether emergency or something severe like cancer. You pay for it as you work, and it is there for you when you need it. And the only thing a husband or wife or father or mother or brother or sister or child or parent needs to worry about at the moment of crisis is taking care of their loved one. Now, it's not perfect. It's gargantuan, more than 1.5 million full-time employees, and any organization that size will be bureaucratically unwieldy, and sometimes that makes navigating the system for the best care difficult. Improvements in medical technology mean that the up-to-date treatment of illness stretches the budget to the breaking point, and it's a huge budget, 125 billion pounds this year. Now, that's around $160 billion. And if that seems like a lot to American FRDH listeners, it is less than the U.S. spends. According to the OECD, the U.K. spends $4,192 per person on health care, the U.S. is close to $9,900 per person, and that money doesn't buy more life. U.K. life expectancy is 81.6 years. American life expectancy just went down for the third year in a row and now stands at 78.6 years. One problem with the sheer size and use of the NHS is that the little chronic things often get short shrift. Two aspirins and call me in the morning when you're hacking heavily and convinced you have pneumonia isn't very helpful. And I did actually end up with a collapsed lung out of that situation and wasn't told I had pneumonia until after the crisis had passed. But that's one bad experience. And it came in the midst of the greatest challenge to social infrastructure London has seen, arguably since the war. In 2004, the EU expanded to include many of the former Warsaw Pact nations formerly overseen by the Soviet Union. People in those countries had the right to work anywhere in the EU, and many chose to come to the UK. 676,000 came to the UK from Poland alone in the first 18 months they were eligible, and the bulk of them ended up in London. No one planned for this population surge, and the pressure on all services, schools, public transport, and the NHS was phenomenal. It's a measure of the NHS's resilience, created out of the dedication of its staff and the goodwill of the public, that it coped so well. Resentments about this mass migration were channeled elsewhere which is why we're dealing with Brexit, and the rumors that after Brexit, as the British economy contracts, as it inevitably will, the NHS will be too expensive, and American private healthcare companies will be invited to help privatize the NHS. But I digress. The reason I am telling you about the National Health Service, aside from the 70th anniversary peg, is I'm having a knee replacement operation, so there may be a slight disruption to first rough draft of history podcasts while I recover. And yes, to repeat the point, I don't have to worry about co-pays or paying for pain relief medicine, and I'm told it really hurts to have your knee replaced, so I'm going to need some. 
The NHS was born out of the worst crisis of the 20th century. It shouldn't take a similar crisis in the 21st century to create a comparable and comparably effective service for America. There's nothing to fear from a national system that covers everyone and is free of the point of provision. It works. Don't let anyone tell you differently. So there. I think that's a pretty upbeat FRDH podcast, and I hope my donor agrees, and that you will go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and join her in making a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.